Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're talking to Mohamed Mubarak on Somalia. Mohamed is a political and security analyst, and he's on the show today to talk about the ongoing political crisis in Somalia, which has already broken out in fighting in Mogadishu. We will also have a look ahead at the long-term implications of the current impasse. Mohamed, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for having me. So I think, you know, so much is happening so fast, you know, watching these this political crisis in Somalia, yet in many ways, it also, it, you know, it feels a bit like a Groundhog Day. We brought you on to help us make sense of it all and to also take a step back and discuss what all this might mean for the broader federal project in Somalia. Um, first, though, can you talk us through the the state of play at the moment? Of course, President Formaggio moved to extend his mandate by two years there was violence that broke out in Mogadishu as the as the military showed signs of starting to to fracture, and then it looks like now Farmajo has has backtracked some. So, so where do things stand now uh, in terms of this uh, long election crisis? I think it's it's a positive development. Uh, to be honest, that the president at the end he he stepped back from the brink and he he said that he's going to allow the prime minister to take the lead. I think um, because of uh, his actions in the past couple of months and uh, the breakdown of trust among the stakeholders, I think it's going to take a lot more uh, because we've already seen some responses from the opposition that they are not happy about how this is going, that the president has to concede more power. Uh, He has to uh, hand over total control of the security forces, not only the security forces that will be in charge of the elections. So I think um, one step forward, one step backwards. We're just where we are. And what do you make of this commitment to hand over election security to his prime minister? Personally, I think that's uh, very positive. And the president clearly wants to move on from this. He calculated that he could win an indirect elections. And uh, he, he, play, he overplayed his hand by trying to rig the system before the elections. And now he is uh, very desperate to get things got moving. I think the opposition feels like they can wring more things away from, his, from him. I think it's it's positive, but the opposition is not saying it's positive. And militarily, what really took place during this this fighting? My understanding is President Formaggio and, and Villa Somalia lost a fairly significant part of Mogadishu, lost that control to essentially opposition forces. So I think um, we we need to look at this uh, and with with a, with a bigger view and, and look at the context. And Mogadishu was always not uh, really in, in the control of the government beyond. The Wadmah Street, that's uh, about half of the city was always not really in control of the government. The government had checkpoints on Wadmah Street and when you're trying to get into the rest of the city. So that's where the government considered its base of control. So what happened is he lost about half of the territory and beyond Wadmah Street. So he already had lost uh, the rest of the north of Wadmah Street. It was mostly contested areas. I think half the district of Mogadishu contested with al-Shabaab controlling some parts of the periphery as well and uh, clan militias controlling the rest. So the opposition moved into the government heartland and took some districts. Uh, That really, the president felt the pressure. They are now at uh, less than a kilometer from his residence. So um, it was a complete rout. You know, I mean, Formaggio isn't (laughs) exactly known for compromising. And rather than just walking back this extension, he gave even additional concessions, such as the handing over 
um, at least ostensibly, uh, of some power to his prime minister. So I'm just wondering your read of what exactly happened. You say he's desperate now. Was this essentially, you know, the, the opposition flexing their muscles and creating new facts on the ground? Was this the threat of sanctions? What, you know, what, what really changed in terms of uh, forcing Fromajo's hand? I think, as we may have seen, and as, as we've seen clearly from the past couple of months, Fromajo is not animated by international threats or sanctions, threats of sanctions. He doesn't care, to be honest. He has a very small view of the world that surrounds him. What he sees is, uh, that's it. He doesn't care about uh, abstract threats. Um, he sees he has a strong army. He has support around him. That's all he sees. So, And he was impressed by brute force, and he saw the threat on the ground. He not only lost ground, he lost security forces defected, and basically all the clan militias defected. That's the whole Somali National Army. It left his side, and so he was he was he was left with the more professional security forces trained by Turkey and the Americans. They of course done up and was not going to fight anyway. And Gorgor, Turkey's trained Gorgor, was part of the February nineteenth crackdown. But this time round, they refused. They said, we're not going to fight for you. We, we're not going to fight another part of the Somali National Army. It was fine fighting and clan militias on, on the 19th of February. But now this is, this is impossible. We can't do that. So he, he saw no out. And he could only use Eritrea-trained NISA forces and uh, Haramat, which is uh, part of the police force. Uh, and that was not enough. So he lost really badly. And also, you know, I mean, there was always sort of talks. I mean, we've talked about it before in previous podcasts we've done on Somalia. That this was always the sort of threat that was looming over was that if he didn't compromise, that he might lose control of some of the, the military forces. Did he not see this coming? Or what do you think? I'm just curious if he, you know, just read things wrong or, or if he was just pushing things beyond what he should have. I think Farmajo, um, if, if things played out how he was expecting, I think everything would be would be amazing for him. And he, he paid uh, the salaries of the security forces on time and for the past four years. And nobody has ever done that in, in recent Somali history. So Fermaggio was counting on that. Uh, he thought he built some loyalty from the security forces, especially the army. And, he, and also he, he built an extra and forces that he thought would be loyal to him. All of that, it, uh, he didn't expect this. He didn't expect this. Interesting. Um, and also, is the government running out of money? Um, I, I know the uh, the government has come out and said that essentially uh, most of the donors have have pulled out. Can the government keep itself financed if they hadn't started to backtrack? When you look at the and uh, core government functions, the government could and uh, could finance itself from tax collection in Somalia and some of the monies it had it gets from its uh, benefactors. But because they use a lot of money for bribery and uh, buying loyalties and uh, sorting out uh, issues with the clans, they're running out of money. And uh, the finance minister said so himself recently that uh, he said we are at the barrel, like we are at the end of the barrel. And uh, when the fighting started and last week, they said, no, we're not running out of money. So in order to stop the bleeding of support, um, they think that because of the running out of money, that's why they're losing some support, and it's it's not that interesting. Okay, and just quickly uh, before we move on to some some bigger questions, uh, I was hoping to, to to pose to you: What's next after this? These recent moves back and forth. Do you think this is just another means for Formaggio to try to control the process, or or was this a real turning point? I think Formaggio, and looking at the big picture, this was a turning point. To be honest, um, but Formaggio doesn't see that. 
and he thinks he can wiggle his way out of this and that's why he he made some concessions and i think this this is a new chapter it's a very dangerous chapter not only is this threatening fromages and power even after fromage leaves this is going to be a problem for whoever comes next or even if fromage comes back it's not this is not going to go away yeah, thanks. And that's a, that's a great segue to some of these uh, bigger questions I, I hope to pose to you. I mean, obviously, anytime security services start to fracture on, you know, on clan or, or, or sectional lines, I mean, that's obviously a really big deal. So, so, so looking ahead, can Somalia stitch back security forces after this? This continues much longer. And there's still a lot of talk about a post-Amasom future. And I'm wondering, you know, the sort of implications of this looking ahead in your view. I think things that happened have, are showing us that we, we really lack a coherent security force and a coher, coherent security structure. This has really brought to the fore the, the problem with the so-called Somali National Army. And the reason being that uh, while we have an army by name, most of the handguns they use, firearms they use, are owned by clans. And that's why you will find that some, some units will not operate in some areas because they would say our clan elders do not prove. I don't want to name clan names, but in Lower Shabele, you will find clans that have interest in Lower Shabele will send their battalions to fight in Lower Shabele. In Middle Shabele, you'll find battalions of clans that are, have interest in Middle Shabele. And, and in Mogadishu, everybody has an interest in Mogadishu, so you have all, all battalions there from every clan. So we don't have really a, a national army. And uh, the, re- the only reason we, this didn't come to the fore is because we did not have a political crisis like now. So it, we have that problem. The, what we've been doing is having that problem there and uh, ignoring it and also trying, wishing it to, uh, that it would go away. And also in the meantime, trying to build a professional army without integrating the clan militias into making them a professional army. And uh, down the road, we'll see what we're seeing now. They will fight uh, each other whenever there is a political crisis. And uh, as for Amisom leaving, I think it's, it's wishful thinking, to be honest, at this point. If Amisom leaves, we, even without Amisom leaving right now, we're seeing Al-Shabaab expanding, taking my territory. Just uh, a couple of years ago, Amisom, even now, it keeps launching operations to regain uh, areas that were regained 10 years ago. Yeah, and I, of course, want to speak with you about Al-Shabaab um, later on. You know, what do you think are the long-term implications of this debacle, this political election crisis, you know, on consolidating the federal model. Do you think this has sort of just shown uh, the the sort of the weaknesses of it, um, or has this really set things back? I think the political impasse has shown that we have some issues that we need to iron out, delineating the power of the federal government and the federal member states and who controls elections, where, when. This is not uh, sustainable. We cannot have every four years and four men... C- five men come together and decide, oh, when are we going to have elections and where? This, this is dangerous and a situation whereby every four years uh, there's, there's a political crisis. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, I mean, you know, I mean, essentially what, what, what's happened uh, to a degree is the opposition flexing its muscles in many ways was, you know, the, the Hawiye clan, from my understanding, you know, which, which does dominate Mogadishu and, and, and much of the area around it, you know, essentially mobilizing, you know, to, to, to show that they were opposed to, to the Formaggio extension. D- does the sort of that amount of leverage with the people who reside around Mogadishu and, and the clans and subclans there, I mean, d- does that make a bit of a mockery of the entire federal model or is that putting it too bluntly? Um, I think it's, it's way more complicated than that. And Mogadishu is a, is a multi-clan and city. It's, it's the capital and there's no 
there's no one clan that can we can really say for sure it's the majority. The only difference being that and uh, between uh, with the Hawiye because it's uh, they live near the city, so their militiamen can just come and operate in the in the capital and easier than other clans uh, that are based 400, 500 kilometers away. However, yes, to an extent, uh, this shows that the uh, federal system hasn't worked because the clan militias are fighting in the city and have gone back to where they were in 1991 lines. What I'm saying is, in 1991, there was, uh, during the Civil War, each clan had a front line. So you find that uh, sub-clan X will go to its front line from 1991. Subclan Y will go to its front line from 1991. Nothing really has changed, to be honest. Um, we have been blindsided. Uh, we, we focus too much on counterterrorism and al-Shabaab that we forgot to fix the basic uh, security issues. Clans are, have not really reconciled. And there is still a mentality of, this is my front line. This is my area. This district belongs to me. And uh, we still have that problem. And we need to address this issue before we can address the underlying problems with federalism and security and political inclusion. So so in some ways, you know, you have a, a state that, that can't really fully finance itself if the donors pull out and in some ways can't protect itself if the outside forces pull out. And this, whether or not this is a turning point for Somalia, it seems like a bit of an inflection point. I'm wondering if there's any conclusions here about where the, you know, the federal project, the state building project is heading, if it is progressing, um, or, or if you feel to a certain degree, like it, it has been spinning its wheels, so to speak. And, you know, and if, and if this is if this is a sign that that Somalia needs to rethink its approach, and the and the outside supporters need to rethink their approach that they're currently bent on for, for quite a while. I think the problem with the, with the Somali state building is that uh, we have uh, we have too many interests uh, that are not really aligned. We have the local interests and we have the international interest, and which is solely, to be honest, it's focused on one critical issue for them, which is uh, anti-piracy and uh, counterterrorism. That's all they care about. So when they are when they were supporting state building, that's where they put uh, a lot of their energy on, and they they did not care about governance. There is no constraints on executive power. We don't have a constitutional court. We don't have an ombudsman. We don't. We don't have accountability institutions. And there is massive corruption. There is not a lot of money given to anti-corruption and efforts. And let alone outside government. Even within within government, nobody really cares about that. It's one issue: counterterrorism and counterpiracy. That's their their lens. Because the government is created for and by international interests. It it gets its uh, legitimacy from international recognition. Back in the day, we used to have this uh, balance whereby if the government really misbehaves, people can can complain to the quote-unquote international community. And uh, because of the leverage of uh, legitimacy and because they are the ones who are funding it and protecting it, they they had that legitimacy, that influence, that leverage. Now we have Fermaggio who, and and probably people like him who will come later on, who think that uh, we are beyond that. Uh, We don't really need them. This is really a... and that they have local grassroots support, which they don't, by the way. And they delude themselves into thinking that uh, they cannot listen, they won't listen to the international, the international backers. And what you have is uh, the local interests that are not happy. And because of the lack of representation, we cannot vote, we cannot elect our leaders. And uh, yet uh, they overstay their welcome. Yeah, this this whole episode has a bit of a flavor of the of the fable of the emperor with no clothes on. So I, I know you've done a, a lot of research on uh, on on Al Shabab. 
you know, and I wanted to, to, to save some time to talk with you about this as well. I mean, one often hears that this uh, political crisis, you know, as it deepens, you know, that Al-Shabaab is the, is the winner. That's true, of course, probably, but also I think is becoming a bit of a cliche as well. More generally, taking a step back, what's the state of Al-Shabaab at the moment? How much of Somalia does it control, but also is it weakening or strengthening? In terms of weakening or strengthening, Al-Shabaab, uh, its strength varies with time. But at this very moment, it's, it's strengthening. It's conquering new areas. Actually, it was it was on the way on the on the upswing when Farmaja came to power, but thanks to Trump's uh, bomb it all, they they went downwards, and then now and because of the reduction in air attacks, um, they are again back up, and that's the Al Shabaab territorial control. But don't look at that. Think about Al Shabaab's control of uh, government areas and how they can tax them, how they can adjudicate matters within government areas. And that's more dangerous than Al-Shabaab's uh, physical control of territories and on the map, and which is significant areas. They control all the countryside in south and central Somalia, all of it, except um, areas bordering Ethiopia. I mean, what, what you seem to be describing is um, Al-Shabaab playing very much a, a long game, establishing in some ways a, a shadow state, even in government uh, areas, let alone in the areas it, it controls security-wise. And meanwhile, the the actual political actors and political focus is very much on these sort of short-term election uh, crises, etc. Is is that sort of how you see it? The problem we're talking about the Somali state building, Al-Shabaab has, uh, to be honest, it has uh, addressed its issue in its areas and areas the government controls because Al-Shabaab has local representation. For example, the district commissioner of a, a district in Mogadishu is uh, protected by two technicals, two battle wagons, probably 20, 30 men, is not accessible. But the Al-Shabaab district commissioner in Al-Shabaab areas will probably be driving a donkey. He's approachable. And you can go to him and talk to him about your issues and he will fix it. They have that. And, and in, in Al-Shabaab areas, there is no uh, clan infighting. It's, it's very peaceful. So and uh, in the competition to show who is a better government, Al-Shabaab is winning. You know, I, I think for many outsiders, it, it's it's difficult to see how that might be possible given, you know, the level of violence that, that Al-Shabaab has shown against you know, against uh, civilians as well. So, so, so where do they derive their legitimacy from and, and why haven't they suffered more in the eyes of civilians from some of their tactics? Al-Shabaab, Al-Shabaab's uh, attacks and, uh, and the insecurity it causes are not in Al-Shabaab areas. So what you get is that if you are under Al-Shabaab control, if they control where you live, you live in peace. So that's what they, uh, they give you. But if you control where the government is, you don't live in peace. And you cannot drive around freely. You, you you are harassed by the security forces, at least, and if not killed by Al-Shabaab. But if you're in Al-Shabaab areas, the government cannot kill you. Al-Shabaab will not harass you. So a lot of this sort of obviously begs uh, a big question, which is, you know, um, I mean, we talk about a, a federal project, a state building project, you know, that's troubled in many ways. And, and a lot of that, those troubles have sort of come out in the current political crisis, but we're, we're obviously there before. And meanwhile, you, you have an Al-Shabaab playing a sort of long game with local legitimacy. So I'm wondering what you see as the end game out of all this. Um, and, and also, you know, what, what do you think of the notion that, you know, at the end of the day, there will have to be a, a political settlement or political talks with Al-Shabaab? I think that, that, that end game is, I think, it's, is a way, way down the line. It's not going to happen now. And you normally hear, we're not going to talk with the terrorists. But now, Al-Shabaab is saying we're not going to talk with these weak people. So the government is too weak, it's too disorganized, it's too unreliable. They are not in a position to keep their word. They are not in a position to really threaten al-Shabaab. Why would al-Shabaab talk to them? We need, first of all, to have an, a capability to, to harm 
and al-shabab and and the capability to govern and government areas and uh at the very least make it hard for al-shabab not to operate in Mogadishu or government control areas and make it hard for al-shabab to control the areas it controls then you can reach a stalemate point where al-shabab may be happy to talk but now we are not there um i think we are closer for, to al-shabab winning than to the government winning so al-shabab is not interested Yeah. I mean I mean that's interesting in some ways because of course uh we've also seen in the Afghanistan example for instance that the talks do accelerate actually when the the jihadi group basically um the momentum is on their side. It's just obviously more difficult to strike a deal in that case because then they have less interest in in negotiating. And and I think because Al-Shabaab um and knows that and it hears in the news that uh, Amazon is going to leave i think that's one of its uh, main demands that Amazon leave Somalia before talking to the government the reason they want Amazon to leave is because they want to conquer areas i, mean, I think it's Amazon that's stopping AS from taking over Mogadishu today Amazon has heavy weaponry it has uh, armor which AS does not have but uh, the government doesn't have that so i think Al-Shabaab currently yeah not not going to talk with anybody. So to just sort of close this out I want to get your thoughts and sort of steps forward both immediately but then over you know more of a longer time scale like we've been talking. So so in the sort of now sense, you know, we talked about this back and forth we've had over this very extended election crisis. Um I wonder how you see this playing out um and and what you think could be done to to resolve this. Um there's of course talks of an African Union envoy you know there's also this awkward situation or at least can seem somewhat awkward that the political opposition which is often the one sort of flexing its muscles in Mogadishu isn't actually part of these talks directly um over the elections um so i'm just wondering how you how you see this playing out how, how you think this could be resolved so that at least possibly you get through this immediate crisis that Somalia has found itself in i think and and uh, getting out of the immediate crisis is uh, is going to take a lot of effort and it, it, there has to be a lot of goodwill between the actors uh, there there has to be a lot of uh, um confidence building measures has to be taken then the federal member states of Puntland and Jubaland have already signaled that they are not happy with the current current situation where Robles is in charge of security they don't believe that he's really in charge of anything and uh, also the the local Mogadishu and, and politicians have said that uh, they see Robles as a as a puppet and they don't see him really in power and they see, they still see Farmajo through him Farmajo has done all he, could, he can do to be honest and when short of resigning so the opposition have start giving in and a little bit um the, more effort has to, be, has to be put on them coming on board and to this uh and uh, in the long term we need to think about uh really having a genuine Somali government because we don't really have one now there has to be an roadmap towards elections and uh, local representation and there has to be genuine reconciliation of the clans there has there has to be genuine disarmament of clan militias um we need to professionalize the security forces so that they are not used for political reasons in the future and in the the same way that Farmaj has done now we don't want and uh, to have uh, no clan militias and uh, then end up with a dictatorship uh, and that's actually the argument of uh, some clan elders and some clan leaders that uh, it was right for them to maintain their clan and militias because look at what Farmaji did if if they didn't have their forces now they would be in big trouble i think we need to professionalize the security forces after that uh, we need to deal with the clan militias and and does that approach that you're describing include sort of rethinking the current uh, system the federal system and with all these member states um and then the federal government um or do you think you can build off of what's there now currently I think there's there's no there's no political will at all to change the current system and there's everybody's happy with the with the current system it's just a matter of uh, 
um, spelling out and defining powers and uh, which powers and which groups have. But uh, everybody's happy with this and don't break something that everybody's happy with. Um, because and when you, when we talk about federal member states, we're talking about clans here. Um, you cannot you cannot erase clan from from Somali politics. And uh, the whole civil war was because of clans uh, and uh, lack of representation and resources being spent in the capital. And uh, I think the past couple of years, some of that has been happening. We've been, we've resorted to and uh, all the money being taken to Mogadishu, all aid money taken to Mogadishu, and then from there given to the regions. And the government using that as a leverage with the regions, which is dangerous. Which that's the whole reason we had the Somali civil war started, start, and we don't want it starting again. As we've seen now, we need to go back to the basics. Uh, when I say basics, I'm talking about the federal and uh, federal system that was agreed upon, uh, and build from it. If you were to put on the sort of optimist cap, I'm wondering if you, you know, if you saw, you know, sort of this crisis that we're in now, sort of also creating an opportunity perhaps to, to, to revisit uh, some of these more fundamental issues in Somalia. If there was a process that sort of played out towards addressing, you know, a very ambitious agenda that, that you describe, you know, what, what would that look like to you? I think, I think the, the current uh, crisis is, is really a, a very good uh, opportunity. It's a, it's a, it's a great uh, learning. We, we saw that uh, um, the president can, can just overstay his, uh, the end of his term. We saw that the security forces will just take his orders. Um, we saw that some of them will just not take his orders. Um, so I think this is an opportunity to to draw up uh, draw up a system where the the president, when his term ends, he's inclined to hold elections because he loses power. So we need to add that clause to. Um, I think that would be something that uh, would happen. I I believe that's going to happen. To be honest, so that. Uh, Next time we have uh, somebody who doesn't hold elections on time and uh, time ends and power flows to the Speaker of Parliament. And as the opposition was clear, wanted last time, uh, something like that. Uh, so the president will be inclined to make sure elections happen on time. I also see uh, more accountability and of uh, and, uh, the security forces commanders because they they now what they're saying is I was given an order. I think that should not be that should not be an, that should, should not be enough. And taking illegal orders should be made explicitly illegal, and uh, they should be accountable for that. So I think and I will I will want to see some accountability on the destruction and the lives lost and during this uh, crisis in the past week. I think that that would be a start. You know, to start, um, I'm wondering what a sort of political process that looks like, you know, in other contexts, it's often a sort of national dialogue sort of situation or a constitutional process or constitutional view, but that really starts to revisit this fundamental structures and sort of political settlement of the states. Could you see any scenario where, where, where you know, a political process arises that, that addresses uh, beyond these starting points, but the more, the more fundamental um, issues you're raising? So when Formaggio came to power, and uh, actually before Formaggio, there was uh, discussions going on with the with the federal member states, uh, presidents, uh, and uh, Hassan Sheikh, and and it continued when Formaggio came to came to power, which was how are we going to structure the national national security forces, and how are we going to, and uh, what's going to be the um, chain of command, and who's going to be responsible for where, and they they had a good document. The document was uh, was. Uh, was enshrined in the uh, in the May London uh, conference in 2017, and uh, that was the end of it. So 
when we talk about Somalia being, you have to be realistic. And you cannot be very optimistic because things things have been said and done. Beautiful documents have been signed. So, and if two steps are taken just to fix small issues, I'm happy. Thank you, Mohammed, very much for, for for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, as always, for listening. Just a note, we have done a few episodes recently about Somalia, so go back and listen if you want to know more about the current situation and its context. You can find more from Crisis Group at crisisgroup.org. I'm on Twitter at Alan Boswell. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis. 